the show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results with Andrew Weiss. We have the wonderful Victoria Pelletier here today joining us talking about her journey to being a COO at 24 years old, a successful speaker, and still thriving in the corporate life. And in case you're wondering about who this Victoria person is, she's a corporate executive, she's a board director, she's an author, and she's a professional keynote speaker. But I'm very excited for today's interview. And Victoria, tell us, what is the biggest and best business deal you're most proud of? Well, first of all, Andrew, thanks for having me here. I'm happy to be uh, chatting with you and uh, your listeners. That's a tough one for me, although I, I won't have a problem bragging. I I feel like I've just been doing this for so many years and have had like a lot of great successes. So picking one of them will be very, very difficult. I've been a part of 18 mergers and acquisitions, and a lot of those came with corporate restructure and finding synergy or, you know, taking some distressed businesses and improving them. And, and, and that's garnered me the nickname of the turnaround queen. But one of the ones I guess I would say over the last number of years, there was one organization I worked at uh, where I was the executive sponsor for two very large clients. They were actually, uh, and it was when I was living in Canada, Canadian market, much smaller, but the um, clients were two of the top 10 globally. And I was for, for, for our organization and I worked really closely as the executive sponsor with our client C-suite executives and was able to renew those deals, seven year plus contracts. Each of them was worth $250 million plus to the organization. And as I was in the final stages of that, the company I worked for sold that entire business unit to a private equity firm. So not only had I just secured this business, I then had to, I had clients who were really concerned about what that meant and a change of control. And a big part of what I did through that, that acquisition and the transition was securing the signature for the change of control on those brand new contracts that were 500 million plus to that company. Oh my gosh. Well done. A round of applause. That, <laughs> that is incredible. And I love how confidently you say these numbers. Oh yeah, I worked with a $250 million deal, ends up being a $500 million deal and 18 murder, mergers and acquisitions. You're part of those? Yeah. For the companies I've worked for, I've actually been in professional services the majority of my career. I'd say I've probably done at least another 20 supporting other clients. But those 18 were ones specifically for the companies I worked for. And one of them was a company I personally acquired as well. Oh, that is so cool. That's so cool. Well, I I like starting off this way because it's kind of like the uh, story where it's like the hero's journey. You're at the top of the mountain. You just took over the world. You're like, uh, you're like at your uh, battle cries out there saying, I did this. Heck yes. But as we know, you didn't come out of the womb figuring out how to do uh, <laughs> all, all these things. And, and for those who don't know Victoria's background, she came from an abusive household. And I know what well, analogy I like is that some people are bouncy balls and some people are eggs. And I got this from another colleague of mine, Josh. And he says, when some people hit the pavement, they collapse. And it's kind of like the analogy um, they ask one son, oh, why are you an alcoholic? And the son goes, oh, it's because my dad's an alcoholic. And they ask the other son who never touches alcohol, why, you, why don't you ever touch alcohol? It's because my dad's an alcoholic. 
So how are you able to create that mindset for yourself? And obviously it was helpful. You got moved into a different home. Was that just the main differentiator? Was just being into, moved into a new home or did you have to figure it out on your own how to create that new mindset for yourself? Yeah, I, I think, Andrew, it's a, a combination of a, a couple of things. So one, I do believe innately in my DNA, fight or flight, I am a fighter. Uh, so, I mean, no shock, this A-type personality and competitive, like it, it's, it, it's innate in who I am. So I think a part of my ability to deal with adversity, trauma, challenge comes from that DNA. The other, I think, is, is a little bit like a muscle that's had to be developed. And I think I didn't always have a healthy level of resilience. I think I got, I was very good at compartmentalizing. And that's, I actually don't think that's healthy. At some point, I think that comes and it can bite you in the ass if you haven't dealt with all of those things. So for me, I had to learn, you know, how to process things very different, differently. And actually, I will attribute my mom and my mom is the adoptive mother who raised me, not the bio, biological mother who was abusive to me. And she was the one who would like sit me down, you know, for hours and I hated it as a teenager, but she was like, Tori, we need to, you know, talk through this. Why are you feeling? Why are you acting this way? And that ability to, to be incredibly self-reflective over why why am I feeling this way? Why do I have this initial instinct or am, am I acting out? And then once I have, I understand that, I can then start to model the thinking, um, the you know, the thoughts, the actions, the behavior to get to the goal or objective that I have. And that is al- always becomes kind of that anchor point for me. So I, again, I think it's a combination of what I've had to learn and exercise over time to be stronger at it. And also a little bit of that, you know, DNA innately in me. And what, what percentage would you say? Is it uh, nurture versus nature? <laughs> I don't know. I question that regularly because I have two children. And if I hadn't birthed both of them, I'd think they were like um, ad- adopted sometime. I mean, they're just <laughs> like polar opposites. I'm like, um, do you come for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't know. Um, honestly, I, I, I think it, it changes for, for different, different things. Um, quite frankly, like I, I do know some of my biological mother's family and there's things that run in the family that, and because I did, didn't grow up with them, but I'm like, Oh wow. So I'm, I'm part of the LGBT community. I was married to a woman before being married to my husband. And when I met some of my biological cousins, they told me like, there's just a huge queer population in that family. And I'm like, and I now have a queer child as well. Like, so I'm like, okay, so maybe there's some nature in there as much as from, you know, from a nurture perspective, being an open and supportive mother and family that, you know, that created a safe place for my younger one, for example. So, but then there's other circumstances where I think it's way more nurture, you know, when I think um, in terms of like environment and experiences that have contributed versus like biology. Interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, And how... Um, so being, being married to women before a man, so it sounds like you knew at a young age that you were attracted to women first, um, well, it was attracted to both first. Both. I came out at 14 in a Catholic high school. Um, my mom was incredibly liberal and supportive, um, as bisexual. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I've kind of vacillated over the years. It was, I dated still mostly guys, although I grew up in a small, like Western town, like I I grew up in Canada, but I I called it city I was in is like Texas North. So there, there just wasn't as much of a queer community there. So I dated mostly men. And then when I got relocated across the country to Toronto, which is like New York North, it was much more open. And I started dating women. And then for the first couple of years after I started dating women, I actually said, Oh, maybe I'm a lesbian. And then I just comfortably as I, in my skin, as I grew and matured, I just said, look, I like humans. I care less about body parts, more about 
more about the individual. And so I use the word queer because my younger one says I should say pansexual because I could be with a trans person. So, and I'm like, look, there's, there's so many labels now and I actually prefer not to label it. So I say queer, it just means I'm not straight. Got it. (laughs) And and how did that affect um, your, your fight or flight and and just like, do you feel like it made things harder? Like, did you just like, Oh, it's just, it's irrelevant to what my aspirations are. Like, how how does that affect everything? Um, I've been really fortunate to not have, have it had a significant impact, but I will say in the corporate world, it's, at times been challenging for me. I think uh, earlier in my career, I, I've i never hidden it. In fact, when I got pregnant with my older son, we made front page headlines. And so, and my wife and I, you know, there as I was pregnant, and it was when Melissa Etheridge came out and said David Crosby. So it was time and they, they came to interview me for a quote, but loved our story. And I was like a picture in the, uh, on the newspaper. So I wasn't hiding it. However, when I met clients who I didn't know, for example, if they would be accepting, I played the pronoun game. My other half, or I would say partner, which a lot of people just assume now means you're, you're, you're gay. But so I, I did that just until I could kind of suss people out. I know I, I stopped doing that though many, many years ago. But where I did see is there was a few instances where I had some colleagues who would, were horrible to me. You know, one in an instance where I led our client management and operations team, and he was the leader of sales. And he said, you can never come in and meet with my clients. And it was just, he was a you know, very devout, devout Mormon. And so the fact that I, you know, was married to a wife and, you know, had two children with, you know, that wife, he was just beside himself. And so he was awful. Uh, and so I had to experience that and still show up professionally and do my job every day. Interesting. And, and so, yeah, what, what do you tell um, yeah, people that community who do have to go through that, who do have to be um, prejudiced against just based on, on who they love? Like, what, what do you tell them to stay strong, stay encouraged, like just keep, smile and wave? <laughs> what, what do you tell them? I, well, a number of things. And, and some of it depends on where, where you are. Uh, and so I moved to, I moved to South Florida a couple of years ago. And so this is not a, our governor and this is not a state where it's, it's uh, as open and, or if you're in other parts of, you know, the world, quite frankly. And so my message will, will vary based upon that. Like I always want people to be safe, uh, but I will encourage everyone to find others like them who can talk about their experiences and share and give advice and support and to, and to seek help uh, as well if they need to. So if it's a psychologist or a psychiatrist or someone to help because of the experiences and lack of support they might have for their family, then then find that support rather than go it alone or just suck it up and smile and move forward. But then also I'll say where they do feel there's safety personally, that our, our voice is our power. And so to, to speak up to that. So if they're experiencing discrimination in the workplace, for example, to make sure you, maybe you might not be comfortable having the conversation directly to the face of the individual who's done that to you, but take that to your HR team, take that to your leader and and try to make a change and move that forward. And if you're an ally, I would ask you to do the same. If you see something, say something. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. No, and obviously, yeah, I mean, for those listening, I'm definitely a big advocate for treating people fairly and uh, not caring how people look or how they think towards others. Just like, yeah, do it based on merit. And uh, that's, that's the most important at the end of the day. So let's go into talking about, so you became a COO at 24 years old. What would you tell that 16 or 18 year old out there, what it would take to be as cool as Victoria and say, you know what, if you want to be a COO by 24, here's what it takes. Here's what you got to do. 
what would you tell that that person? Well, I, I would tell them I think I was fairly unique and had some circumstances that enabled or contributed to me taking that role at such a, a at an early age because I think it's a little bit more of the exception than the rule. So thank you. I'm you know I'm happy for people to look up to me and aspire towards that. But the reality is. I actually think it's a significant challenge unless you're building your own business, um, you know, to, to move into the, some of those roles. But the reason I uh, was able to become an executive, the CEO at 24 and a brand new mother. So they like, you just layer on a bunch of things that happened at that point was I started in the work workforce at age 11. I worked in a hair salon. I mean, my, my adoptive parents were not very well off. Uh, my dad was a school janitor and my mom a secretary. I never needed to worry about food or clothing, but there was no extras. There was no vacation. There was no you know high school grad trip, not, none of those things. So I started working for the extras. And by 14, I was the assistant manager. Uh, and so my first people lead, leadership experience in the shoe store I worked at, I graduated high school at 16, started working in banking throughout university or college and got promoted within six months, even in that environment. And I was a voracious learner. And so I focused on making my skills um, better, learning more, and being really focused on being a top performer uh, as well. And so, you know, that that helped dramatically. That COO role, there was um, not luck. The doors opened to me because I had large-scale operations in a contact center um, environment, and this was an outsourcing company, so contact center outsourcing, and they had large banking clients. And I'd spent the last six years working, you know, in banking environments. And I showed up with confidence. So that 16 or 18 year olds you want me to talk to, I'm going to tell them, focus on your performance and your skills and making and developing yourself. And confidence is often taken for competence. I, I don't believe in fake it till you make it, but I do actually believe showing up confidently with an ability to talk about your skills, much like you started this interview today, like go out and brag and talk about that certainly helped. I was exceptionally insecure. Imposter syndrome was real in that regards. And it was a stretch role for me. But I had a number of skills and experience that was relevant. And I learned to talk confidently about how I could build the bridge in the areas that I was missing. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Anyone who would start work at 11 years old and graduate high school by 16, that uh, (laughs) obviously tells a lot about you. But it also shows too, like, yeah, even if you do grad start work at 13 or 16 and graduate at 18, like, um, that's what I've learned too. Like, it's not the uh, years in your age, it's the age in your years. Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, like, like me and my wife, for example, like the, the question was asked, like, oh, uh, how long should you wait to propose? Like, and then I was discussing with friends, like, oh, you got to wait at least uh, six months. And, and I'm like, well, what if you spend every single day together for three weeks versus the couple that spends once a week together for six months? Like you're going to have a lot more time in those three weeks and six months. And so I like what you said too, like just like taking advantage of the present moment and just like really going after it. And just like, it sounds like you, you've always had kind of like a hurried mindset then um, since your adoptive parents took over, you had a fighting mindset. And I did want to ask about the imposter syndrome because obviously that is still one of the top things that people hold themselves back with is uh, thinking they're not good enough. They can't figure it out. They're not going to be able to do it. So, so tell us how you're able to work with your imposter, imposter syndrome to be able to accomplish those things. I am. I'm a big believer that if we don't challenge ourselves, the growth and therefore opportunity will not come. And so for me, I regularly lean into things that make me uncomfortable 
And that discomfort can come and the imposter syndrome comes through a lot has to do with fear. And so, you know, my advice is to get comfortable, you know, in that and asking for that next opportunity. And, and actually just as, as a leader as well, a big part of when I'm looking to hire people, I focus on their potential as much as I do the experience and the education and known performance as well. And so I'd encourage everyone to, again, lean into the discomfort, to spend a lot of time reflecting on the things you are really good at and where you have experience and those areas where there might be a gap, gain confidence in terms of how you can bridge that gap, whether it's education and reskilling yourself or surrounding yourself with people who can complement you in those, in the areas where you might be lacking. Does imposter syndrome ever go away? I don't, you know, I think in people who have some great humility, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. You know, the confidence versus arrogance line. And when it, when it broaches into that next one, maybe it goes away. Um, (laughs) And, but then I think our ability to be truly great diminishes if we don't have a little bit of fear or concern around what that like the future looks like and our ability in those roles. It's kind of like, you know, getting butterflies before you go on a stage that as a speaker, like that rarely goes away, but that's excitement and confidence and gives me like, uh, you know, almost, you know, better performance on stage. Interesting. So with, with imposter syndrome, just like recognizing that there's always things that we do know there's, there's, it's okay to have that gap of things we don't understand and I guess, so you, we, we kind of flipped the script on using imposter syndrome as motivation saying, hey, it's okay, because it means we get to learn more and be and research more and do what it takes to kind of be more comfortable with it. Is, is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And I think everyone has it. And it's interesting. I spent a lot of time coaching a lot of women in particular, and we, I, it's more prevalent in women, just so you know, than it is in, in men. Mm. Um, even and the precursor to, you know, the imposter syndrome, like not even applying for that next role or opportunity because they fear they, they're not perfect, right? So there, there is data that shows that women will not apply for that next role or opportunity unless they believe they have like nine or 10 out of the 10 skills work requirements. Men will apply at five or six. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I would say yes, get com- like get comfortable with the discomfort, but like don't hold yourself back. You're going to step. It, it, you know, you, the, others might look at you, even if you don't have all ten of the skills or, or whatever the requirements are. Hopefully, you're going to find people like me who not only look at you know the skills and experience and requirements that you do meet, but again potential that you have, you know, to learn and be better and, and eventually, um, you know, meet all of the requirements. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, yeah, like what you said, like hiring based on competence, but also based on potential. How do you measure someone's potential when you're talking to someone? Like, how, how do you gauge that? Honestly, I think that's a little bit more gut feel. I think it's a lot easier to validate skills, experience, talking through successes that they've had, the potential, you know, for me comes through dialogue over the, um, you know, their readiness to in, improve themselves and be a problem solver and, and innovate. And so getting them to talk through a little bit um, of that and how do they solve for some of those gaps, that in itself tells me around their propensity to learn and their potential in that role. And then let me not also forget, I mean, I'm, I'm also hiring for, for fit. 
I, I want the right kind of team members, you know, to build the right kind of cultural uh, organization um, that I would want to work in. Interesting. So, so do you have like these like go-to questions that you like to ask people to like gauge their potential? Like I remember uh, I love reading the interviews of Jeff Bezos and that's how he decided like he was going to marry this, his first wife. It's unfortunate they didn't work out, uh, but obviously you know, anyway, he asked, like, I knew I wanted to marry this woman because I knew if I was stuck in a third world country in a prison that she'd figure out how to get me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so is there any like questions like that you like to ask candidates to see their quote unquote potential and figure out how they operate on things? I am. Um, so I first of all, I hate being scripted. So it's interesting, like you, the recruitment teams will often like prepare hiring managers with a list of questions potentially. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I'm not, I'm not following that. And so um, for me, so I, I kind of navigate and go with the flow. The questions generally will be, and I want them to be real life. So sometimes like I, I'm, I'm a leader who wants to be incredibly transparent. I want people to come in eyes wide open into the situation they might be getting themselves into. And so for me, the question will be place yourself in this situation. And, and I try and make it an actual real life one. This is the dynamic you're going to come into based upon what I'm describing to you. I want you to tell me how you're going to solve for that. And so they might, they have very little, unless it, I mean, it also tells me how much research have they done about the organization, about me, about other things before coming in. So um, their ability to have one researched, like done this homework, t- that in itself t- tells me something. And their ability to think really quickly around an innovative solution to solve the challenge I've put in front of them. However they respond, that's where I'll make a basis on what do I believe their like potential propensity to learn, those sorts of things look like. Yeah, it is always uh, fascinating to me. Like I haven't done... I've obviously done a few interviews in my life, but like, it's always curious how all these interview questions, it seems like it takes away from what you'll actually be doing once you get hired <laughs> and not enough companies ask like, all right, listen, uh, you're going to be an accountant. Um, our, our firm is working with this hypothetical situation. How would you act in this? And how would you navigate this? Versus like, they'd say, Oh, tell us uh, your life story and uh, tell us your strengths and weaknesses. And like, and it's always curious how like they ask questions that aren't always relevant too. And so I'm curious, like, do you, is, is there a percentage of like, quote unquote, relevant questions that you ask just to get since their personality? Like, how, how do you gauge the percentage of relevant to work versus overall questions to understand who they are for a culture fit? I am. Um, so th- I, I operate in a, in a space where in the types of people that I'm hiring, it's, not quite as easy, you know, as you might. So like hiring some, someone who's a developer or an accountant or, you know, that's a really like functional expert expertise. Uh, so one, I'm hiring at a more, at a more senior level. So I'm, I assume, um, that they, you know, have, you know, reached a lot of those qualifications, but a lot of what I'm hiring for are other, other leaders of people or leaders of client portfolios. And so, a lot of so what I'm going to be doing in, in in that interview is trying to really get a sense of who that person is by having building actually right off the uh, the the bat a trusted relationship that's built on being in my case radically candid. So I'm going to be really transparent. I'm going to be direct with you. I do that from a place of care and compassion, but that actually will breed and build trust. And so I do that from the get go um, when I'm meeting someone. 
And then so that I, I want to get to know them as well. So I, I spend a big part of the interview, assuming that all the other interviews they've had before they've gotten to me, a lot of those technical questions have been answered already. So I want to know a lot to do with fit. How do you, and then when it, whether that's as a leader of people um, with, or I worked in lots of fortune 100 or 500 companies, highly matrix organizations, you have to be adept at navigating a political na- landscape and managing through influence. So I'm going to ask questions like like that. I want to see how do you engage with clients? How do you build relationships? And so a lot of it is a, a much more casual conversation and scenario-based questions where I just want them to tell me around times they've had in the past where they've dealt with that, or if this was the current scenario, how would you handle it? I love that. Those, those, are, those are great questions. And just like, uh, I like that, just like the human aspect of things. Because at the end of the day, yeah, anyone could do a service. But obviously, people remember is not what you did for them, but how they felt while you were helping them, essentially, right. according to Maya Angelou. That's why I put that quote on my uh, LinkedIn profile. People forget what you said and what you did, but they won't forget how you made them feel. So I like how you ask questions around that. And I want to shift to to the your speaking side of things. So you developed a, uh, as you mentioned, six figure side hustle uh, off speaking, and people are like, "What six figures? I wish I could make that in a year in my life." And you're able to do it as a side hustle. Like that's so incredible. T- tell us more about that journey. How you got involved with that? So I am. I've been speaking for 20 years. The last 10 or so professionally, and the first 10 was just going and speaking at conferences or events related to work, and then. As I, I've always been, you know, coaching and mentoring people in the workplace, and the professional speaking grew a little bit out of some of those dialogues. So, talking to the employee or business resource groups, talking about my career journey and my why, and so I started sharing it on smaller scales, and then I, it sort of exploded. and 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 that was also a shift for me to sharing as openly and transparently about my own experience. And I love the opportunity to engage and share. I, there's a lot of things that my 40-something-year-old self, I wish I told my 20-something-year-old self. And so I'm trying to impart some some of that um, on audiences. And I love to see like the engagement uh, with people. And so it's like an adrenaline rush for me to stand on f- like stages or in audiences. So when we went, when COVID hit and we had to do it all via Zoom, like it's so it's just not the same. And so I speak on things that I'm passionate about. I said, I don't like to be scripted. So although there's a, you know, six or seven different keynotes that I deliver all the time, they're never exactly the same because I'll feed off energy. And sometimes I, I feel like I'm going to tell this story versus another one. And so I mix the personal with the subject matter expertise. So I will talk about my, the main one I do is like the unstoppable story, which is my journey, but also talks ar- around career advancement and what do I attribute some of my career success to? But it, I start with, I, I start with my why to borrow from Simon Sinek. My why is my lived experience. That's why I drive like so, so hard. But I also talk about leadership and culture. And I always like weave in these, you know, personal stories to, to engage um, with people. But um, it is my side hustle, hustle by choice. I've had lots of people say like, would you want to just do this full time? And the answer is no. I think if what brings me such great joy, if it was my full-time job, I don't think I would enjoy it as much. So for me, I like doing it as, you know, a part-time piece that pops into, you know, to my, my, you know, daily or weekly routine. Interesting. And tell us, uh, tell us why you wouldn't want to do it full time, just out of curiosity for those who want different perspectives on things. 
Um, I, like I just said, I think if it was, I think it was my full time gig, I, I wouldn't enjoy it as, as much. Mm. Uh, one, two, I will tell you, it's exceptionally exhausting. So being on is tough. Like now I'm, I am naturally an extrovert, but at, you know, the end of a work day or work week, particularly having done a number of speaking engagements, like I'm done. I tell my husband, I'm like, poor guy who's like ready to get out and explore. I'm like, oh, babe, all I want to do is just like sit here. I'm not answering the phone. Like I just, you know, want to like mind mindlessness. And um, the other reason is I really enjoy the complexity of my corporate day job. I'm solving crazy problems and leading large teams. And, you know, that is, and I can share those experiences on the stage, but I want to be able to do those things as well. That makes sense. And so you mentioned that you love mentoring and coaching people. How do you decide who you decide to mentor and coach? And and what, and what how do you, and that's the first question I'll ask. How do you decide who you, who you choose? <laughs> well, I'm always committed to m- my team. So first and foremost, and then in others that they might ask for me to meet with. But then I'm often recommended to connect with, you know, other people. There's a former employee and actually indirect, like, but somewhat removed that went to a different firm. And she contacted me and said, Hey, there's someone at this company that I'm working with. And it turns out it was a, a trans person who was being discriminated against in that environment. It started with, can you just kind of talk to them? And I loved his story and I wanted to help him. And so he became someone that I've invested in and regularly meet and connect with, but it could be others. So th- I think there, there's three different sort of types of coaches or mentors I think everyone needs to have in their life. There's coach. That's typically your that your direct supervisor, the person who can ensure you're performing and being successful. Then there's the mentor and who can help guide you. And it doesn't necessarily always need to be um, hierarchical, like at someone more senior than you. Like if you're looking to shift functions or industries, you actually want to go out more broadly to gain other people's experiences. And then there's the sponsor. So sponsor, Andrew, is more... I, I will only choose who that person is. You, you can't, you can't like create. I, I remember at one of the organizations I worked at, they tried to match people and sponsor. I'm like, you don't match me as a sponsor. It's my reputation on the line because I'm advocating for someone when they're not in the room. And I'm doing that based upon their brand, their performance, their potential. And so I'm going to, I'm going to choose that. And so sometimes I just see great humans who are performing well. And I, there was a person when I was at IBM, you know, who who was that individual. I was determined he was going to make executive, make partner, and um, so I made sure I just got him connected with the right people. So for me, it's a it's a combination of you know people that I'm just directly supporting that I'm committed to their success. So I'm going to coach and mentor them. Others who ask me to do so, and others I just directly choose because I believe in them. Mm, I I love that and. And how do you have like the, um, as they say, attached detachment of, cause obviously you can't control what people do. All you can do is kind of guide them and stuff. So it sounds like for the person, for example, the person you wanted to become partner, do they end up becoming partner as well? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so what, what about, are there, are there any people who like you try, who try to coach a mentor and they just weren't having it? And then you guys change directions and like, how, how do you, as a coach and a mentor myself, like how do you figure out how to um, emotionally attach versus detach from people who you're helping? I always build emotional attachment. And so it's, it's hard not to, but the, when I take on a little bit on a more formalized, so I do a tiny bit of like 
executive coaching on the side, no more than generally a couple of clients, you have to be referred to me to do that. And that's just because of time and capacity. Uh, but before I would ever accept that, I'm very clear with someone around my style and how I'm you know, going to be working with them. So the radical candor for your, you know, your listeners, Kim Scott's book, I, I always operated in this way, but as soon as she wrote the book, I had the vernacular to match what I was doing. And so that is being direct. It's called radical candor is the radical book? candor. Yeah. Kim okay. Scott um, okay. is, is the author and she talks about, Oh, COO of Facebook. I'm forgetting. Sheryl Sandberg was her boss and who gave, gave her some incredibly direct feedback, but from a place of care and compassion and to see her grow that that's where the, it, it stems from, but that that's how I operate. But so for me to coach someone, I'm going to have, I want to, we should actually have, I think some kind of an emotional connection. I'm invested in your, your growth and performance and betterment, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to have a really difficult conversation with you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask very difficult, difficult questions for you. And some don't like that. I actually had one that I worked with in the last year and it was more on the personal branding side than on the executive coaching side. And I was very clear, like, this is how we're going to operate. And at one point I gave her like, it was strong feedback. And the next month she's like, I'm wondering if we should end our like, you know, like relationship. We're still connected, but like it was, it was some, some very difficult, harsh um, feed, feedback. And then when it's in, in the workplace and I'm coaching people, like I'm, I, as I said, I'm committed to their success but at some point we need to part ways. So as much as I might like an individual personally and, you know, feel emotionally towards them and I might and recognize I'm impacting their career and financial livelihood by making some of these decisions. If after doing everything I can to coach and guide them and give them, you know, the actions and tools and support to be successful, they choose not to do that. Then at some point I have a business to run. And, you know, I have other team members that I'm supporting and we might need to make um, the difficult decision to part ways. Interesting. So, so sometimes they initiate, sometimes you like, you, you just take on, let's say three month or six month clients at a time. And eventually you guys say, Hey, our time is up. Essentially is the person who helps become a partner. Is that one of your most proud moments of uh, helping coach and mentor someone? Yeah. I mean, he was, he was such an exceptional person that I, I do actually think he, he would have made it on his own. It might not have been in the year he made it. It might have taken a little bit longer, but I think I, I really did get him connected with a lot of the right people within our organization. So he had visibility because a big part of the way you make partners around some of your financial numbers and there, there's a lot of other metrics, but this one was heavily, heavily focused on that and he didn't have those. So if it was that alone and I hadn't gotten him connected and visible to others, it might not have happened when it did. But, you know, I, I've had a, a number of those. I, for me, at some point, I shifted as much as I am focused on the business results. The legacy I want to have is around being a really good human and improving the lives, the communities, the workplaces, and all the people that I touch. And so, and by the way, by being that kind of a human-centered leader who's really focused on their people actually drives the business result. Like there's no, there's no trade-off here, but that's where I've, you know, like almost maniacally focused on you know being that kind of leader, building other types of leaders, and then having the right kind of culture as the outcome of those actions and behaviors and the right kind of people. I love that. And I think it's a great attitude too, is understanding going back to like the quote unquote detachment is like 
this person is going to get here no matter what. I want to help them get them get them there faster, kind of thing. Because um, obviously, it still gives them control, and again, that you can still pat yourself on the back. But obviously, it's not about patting yourself on the back. But obviously, it's still still kind of good to have. And uh, I also wanted to ask too about the mergers and acquisitions side of things. So um, I just got started with the show Suits. Um, I know it's been out for like 10 plus years, but uh, have you heard of that show or seen any of that by any chance? (laughs) So I I know like in the show, like, oh, mergers and acquisitions. Here's all the papers. Good luck. Have fun kind of thing. What is as a as a corporate as a corporate member and obviously this obviously applies in the entrepreneurial world too but tell us about the mergers and acquisitions as far as like general advice approaches approaches you wish you knew earlier and how to navigate that i'm just curious like your overall approaches and thoughts to that uh, so i so of the 18 that i've been a part of uh, for the companies i worked for or in one for myself i've also done probably 20 for for clients um as well that i've supported so i've been a part of many of them and a variety of different types and and involvement in in the in the stage. Um, so everything from like like identifying targets to acquire to um, the due diligence. Well, once we've identified and going through to the the end to end process that included the integration of and like detailed project management people and process and technologies. That includes things like reorganization or, or restructuring as the, the acquisition uh, integrates into um, the uh, acquiring company. And so what I would say you know, that I've learned is where it can go incredibly wrong, uh, more once the, com- the acquisition's taken place, is in the communication and the change management. And this is where I- I've actually in the... So as I've shared, much of my career has been in like professional services. And so consult through to operate with technology always kind of is the enabling force. And actually, when I was at IBM, I ran the, the, the last role I was in was running all of the Americas, what they call talent transformation, client facing business. So HR strategy was reorganizations and people development and all, you know, the DEI, all those kinds of things, as well as the technology and the outsourcing. I also led all of the change management function for all of IBM's America's business unit. And I remember telling our leaders that if we weren't embedded in any kind of transfer, it could be like a technology implementation. It, you know, it didn't have to be an acquisition, but if we weren't embedded as part of the change management team, I thought we needed to look at the way we looked at contingency and risk associated with that in a very different way. Because many companies think, hey, I have a project management office, which is where change management often will sit. But a merger acquisition is so different than the kinds of projects that they're doing. And the way we need to communicate and get ahead from so with the connectedness of leaders and business unit and, um, leaders, but all the way down to frontline leader, that is so important. So I think if we we don't have outside support, general like to help us with that, and we're not really careful around crafting the messages and being transparent, like it creates incredible fear, you know, in the people, particularly those who have been acquired, but everyone they're like, oh my god, are the, most people expect there's going to be some kind of synergy savings expected. So what does this look like? So get in front of that you know, say like, this is what I can tell you. This is what I know, but also here's what I don't know yet. You know, here's how you're going to be a part of the process. Here's the timeline, all of those sorts of things. That's where I see a lot of this go wrong. And the other would be in some of the due diligence. 
um, that gets done upfront, whether it's on understanding the contracts, contract values, the you know operating profits, those kinds of dynamics. Those are important, certainly when maybe when we're talking a little bit more for some of the entrepreneurs here who might be thinking about selling their businesses or potentially acquiring one to run. Oh, I love that uh, the, the due diligence um, and, and like. How often is it where like a company will quote unquote make up numbers or exaggerate them during this process? Like, how do you, (laughs) how do you navigate that? Well, so I personally have had that. So I acquired a data analytics company a number of years ago and my financial um, model was a multiple of the operating profit. And I did a significant amount of due diligence. I had client contracts. I had, you know, the the financials for the last number of years. And sadly, the woman I bought the company from misrepresented. And there's a few files she didn't put in the due diligence reports to show like, so operating, she showed that the operating revenue was a certain number, but it turns out there was a massive kind of grant that is an operating mm, revenue they got built into there. And so that was one of the, you know, client contracts and in like invoice and whatnot that didn't go in there. It was a material. And so really, and get, get support. This is where, I mean, there are lawyers and firms that are experts in this. If you have not done this before, and, and I had done it multiple times and there were still, and so this was just a bad actor. Right. So I had to legal, I had to sue her. Um, oh, so, wow. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, so that, that went wrong, and but I knew what I was doing. But I would tell others, like, you don't let that happen to you. There's a lot of great questions to ask. In this case, I was also buying technology. And so although I'm not, I've worked in technology businesses, and I know a lot about technology, I don't know code. I'm not under the cover. So, you know, I had people who, who did, uh, who came in to help me with that. So please, please make sure you're getting some support with people who have experience and can ask the right questions. So, I, so that's still pretty good. It sounds like out of forty plus M and A's you've dealt with, you've only had to sue one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly, it was me personally. It wasn't you know one of my like my companies who who have a much bigger you know pocketbook for that. Oh, it had to come out of your pocket, even though you're representing the company. So the one I referenced, I personally bought the company. Oh, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was yeah. like an investment I was doing. I didn't. I ended up running it as the CEO. I didn't think I was going to, but um, uh, it's the way it worked out. But no, it was me personally making an investment in acquiring a company. So, man, the legal fees were coming out of my pocket. Now it all worked worked out, etc. So you know, all, all good, all flush. But it was an incredible learning experience. But for the companies I've worked for, none have gone that horribly wrong. I've seen some of the business outcomes not achieved that they you know built into the business case for making the acquisition um, in the integration. But most of that had to do with the leadership, the change management, or not being aggressive enough in changing some of the ways they were doing business. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is how you determine... Uh... Because obviously it's a stereotype that whenever there's an M and A, like they go in and clean house, like starting from scratch, hiring all these new people. Is there any advice you have for giving people like whether that needs to be done or not needs to be done? Like how, how do you approach that? Uh, so it it really depends. And I mean, if you look at a lot of the private equity companies, they want a person they trust in. So they they buy they have these portfolio this portfolio of companies, and they'll often embed people into the company because it's their investment. And so when a lot of time that's the CFO. Many times it's, you know, the founder of the company that they, you know, have acquired, but like the way they manage it is. And so I see that quite frequently. I don't think it's necessary to do that, but I understand why that they're, they're doing it. 
But I don't think there's a need to be cleaning house per se. And where I where I have seen it gone wrong, and it could have potentially for me, there was one company I worked for, we did six acquisitions in 18 months. And I was running all of the North American operations and client teams. And so most of the people sat in my my org. And so there was a significant expectation for me to take millions of dollars out of our our, F, our, our full-time equivalent, our FTE count. Uh, and I could have brought together into like the way I was, I organized sort of the client portfolios. Logically, both the way I'd organized, there was one particular woman from this one company that we acquired who was exceptionally difficult. It took me a year, a solid year of working with her to even get her to trust, trust me. I mean, here wow. I was this 30 something year old Canadian coming down to New York who hadn't been in the industry. She, her, her whole career, she was probably 20 years, my, my senior. And so I, she, she's like, who is this woman? But had I not deeply understood the institutional knowledge she had around the company we acquired and the client. So she was the leader for a very, very important client of ours. And had I not made sure as part of my due my process through post-acquisition in the integration to meet with our clients, I could have mistakenly made a decision in part because she was very difficult and not all the team actually really liked, liked her and her style. But had I not engaged with the client to understand that some of the dynamics there, we would have lost that business, a multi, multi-million dollar a year client for us. And so I knew that wasn't an option. So instead... I had to like deeply commit myself to getting her on board, starting to even just trust me. And so that was a there a lot. As I said, it took a year, and and that client continued to grow for us. And so that's where cleaning house without like going through this exercise. Like I said, this could have cost us heavily. And so I just be really mindful. And so you can build macro organization charts. I'm a big fan of build the right structure and p- put the people in the boxes versus the other way around. That's a mistake. Um, building structure around people um, doesn't often gain you the, the financial benefit. So do it the other way around. But as you're populating those boxes, make sure you have that understanding. And then there might be some exceptions like this woman was for me. Sorry, you said create the structure first and then put the people in the boxes versus creating the structure around the people. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I was wor- I was working with a um, a client last year who was doing it was a massive core. It was a CEO and with his board a massive corporate restructuring. And I remember, and this is where I pushed pushed this with them. And funny, I remember saying to him, "I'm like, look, I don't think you hired me to tell you what you want to hear." But he was trying to move someone because so we had built a structure and said this is the way to consolidate and move and gain all of these savings. And there was a woman whose whole org was being moved into another, but he was very close with her and he was going to move her into this role that I, she didn't even appear to have the experience for. And so that's where I'm like, okay, well, so here's the structure. And we put, you know, the, the right people into those boxes. And he was trying to build a very, like do a quasi between those two of them where, you know, he's trying to create things for people based upon relationships and those sorts of, of things. And so to doing the right thing for the business and the people isn't always aligned. And, and so recognize that there's, there are still going to be some really difficult decisions that need to be made. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it. I'd love for you to to dive deeper into that story of that woman who was 20 years, your senior, and like, wouldn't listen to you, wouldn't cooperate with you. And 
I don't know about you, but I don't have much patience. And so waiting a full year <laughs> to, to work things out like that. That's well, a long time. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm always committed. So my team, I yeah. always have like calendared one-on-ones with my direct reports and many times skip levels as well. Although I'm clear with my team, like that is, we're, we're not, that's not the only time you come and talk to me. We're just making sure there's space in our calendars. Yeah. Time gets away and we'll shift it if we need to, if there's conflicts. And so, I mean, it was like a, bi-weekly or, or, okay. or monthly meeting with, with her and lots of regular meetings around the client and the portfolio that she had, et cetera. So it was just a full year of many, many meetings, but a couple of, you know, conversations where I remember saying to her, like, Kathy, like I, I, you need to know, I don't have all the answers. And yes, I'm this like younger Canadian who's been moved down to New York to, you know, manage all of this, but I need your support. I need to leverage you. I respect deeply the industry experience you have and how much this client loves you. I said, but we have expectations. The company we work for was a public company. I'm like, and our, you know, North American president, like we have, so you got to help me. And so how are we going to do this? And so I think by being really open and, um, and one saying, I don't know what I don't know, but I trust you. I want you to be a part of this and help me figure this out. I actually think that over time is what helped. And I think she saw like I was committed and I was doing other things and, you know, doing the you know betterment for, you know, our business and, and again, trusting her pretty significantly. That's what helped so that after one full year, I finally recognized, okay, she's fully on the bus. Uh, that is interesting. I, I remember uh, one of my top favorite books I've ever read and I love rereading it is The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. I'm not sure if you've heard of that book yet. Um, I, I haven't. Uh, but yeah, I recommend it. And one of the top takeaways from the book is like, no one's better than you and, and no one's lesser than you. And in the book, it does touch on a little bit, um, you know, what it's like, you know, when you have to manage people who are older than you and how they like, you're like, why would I listen to you? It, it, and so I'm curious too. So with, with this uh, Kathy example, how did you get, get her to eventually work with you? Even though she's like, well, why are you even here then? If you don't have all the answers, like, 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 why should I even budge at all? If, if I'm, I'm, I know what I'm talking about and you don't. And so how do you, how do you help navigate that? I think this is a, a little bit, Andrew, to our conversation around imposter syndrome, mm. that self-awareness. So my ability to say to Kathy, like, yeah, I, I have a, I think at that point I only had a few years in that particular industry versus her, 30 year career. But I had at that point other MA experience, integration experience. A big part of what we needed to do was integrate all of the different technologies together. And I had previously been running the shared services environment for that organization before then taking over all of the North American um, operations and moving down. And so my ability to say, like, these are the things the, where I, I have skill and I have experience. Yeah, I've got these gaps over here, but this is why we're going to complement one another as a great team, mm, plus others like we that. have, you know, and here's, and so bridging it that way and, and acknowledging and having humility that I, I don't, you're right. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all of the industry experience, but I have this. So how about my, this and your, that, and so-and-so's Y or Z, like that all brings it, you know, together and is what will make us incredibly successful together. I love that. And just so a big part of us reminding them, hey, we're on the same team here. There's <laughs> ways we can complement each other. Yes. And I, and I also like to admitting like, hey, I don't know everything. And hopefully that usually gets you the person to admit, okay, yeah, I don't know everything either. So <laughs> that, that helps a little bit too. 
Oh, well, thank you for answering these questions about mergers and acquisitions. I have a few questions left here. So tell, tell us more. So what, what is your current um, mission and end game that you're working on that you're, uh, you, you want to help change the world? Oh, yeah, I um, I spend a lot of time talking about personal brand. And one of the important things is around, around brand is to be really clear around the legacy or the impact you want to have. And so mine, I did say a little bit earlier, is around like, I want to be known for making our communities and workplaces much more diverse and equitable and inclusive and supporting those, you know, in our communities and workplaces. So for everyone, I say, I continue to say community workplaces because for, for me, what you see at work is like the, at the same Victoria as what you see out. I'm committed to and advocate for those things. So for me, you know, I have a few different goals or objectives one is from, you know, the corporate day job, I want to go back to being the CEO or, you know, like a, a another C-suite executive outside of, prof- I want to go back to being the client that I consult for versus, you know, working in these professional services companies. So that's, that's, that's a goal there. Ideally in a smaller organization where I can leverage that M&A experience and transformational experience, like ideally in a private equity, you know, company, something like that. So that's kind of my target, like, career, next step career-wise. And then from a public speaking standpoint, I'm kind of, I aspire, I still want like TEDx to come directly to me. I'm sorry, TED, not TEDx. Cause actually oh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to be doing a TEDx, but like, I want, I, you know, that I want to be on like, you know, the Simon Sinek, Adam Grant, um, like Brene Brown level at some, some point, you know, so yes, I have a six figure, but like some of these people, like the, I, I spoke after Gary Vaynerchuk at some event. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, people were there for Gary. Like by the time, like I got on stage, like it started to thin out, like they clearly weren't there to see me, but to be able to command the audience, I've spoken to thousands of people, but like to fill up a massive auditorium myself because people want to hear the message that's aspirational, you know, for me. And then I've had one a long, long time as, you know, I'm a wife and a mother is in mother in particular to raise two really good humans. And so mine are 23 and my younger one turns 19 next week and they are great humans. And so I'm proud of that. And I said one or both of them needs to, at some point, I'm still not even 50. I'm like, so not for a long time, but make me a grandmother. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever health routine you're, you're doing, you're doing it very well. So there's <laughs> 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 so we lots of, uh, yeah. Yeah. And this, I curiosity too, like, what is, what is your uh, secrets to fitness success as like literally a, a corporate uh, member and like being a mom, like how do you find time for your fitness for those people? So I, I have a saying where there's conviction, there's capacity and, and that's in all, all facets. So whether it's, you know, people who want to become entrepreneurs and they say there's no time. And I'm like, nope, there's your nine to five. And then there's your five to nine. So be choose wisely how, how you um, spend your time. And so if there, you have conviction over something, you can create the capacity, but it also means there's a lot of uh, work you need to do around the boundaries you create and the discipline around it. So for me, I am a fitness fanatic. I work out six days a week. Prior to moving back to the US, I played hockey several times a week. I know, good Canadian girl. Although I didn't pick it up till I was in my 20s. But, uh, you know, so, but doing those things meant I, a number of things. I've long since gone to bed earlier than my, my children because I get up early in the morning to work out. So like lights out for me has been like 9.30 or 10 o'clock. 
Um, so I block my calendar before 9am when I'm in a North American role, it's easier than when a global role, but like I block it because people were just dropping like 8am's on my calendar. And I'm like, I'm literally just stepping out of the shower. Oftentimes, uh, this hair for those who are watching video takes a couple, it, you know, big mane of blonde curly hair takes hours to dry. I don't want to look like a wet dog on camera, <laughs> you know, at like yeah. nine o'clock in the, in the morning. So I block my calendar. I also make time for networking. And so again, pre-COVID, a little bit more so because so much now is still um, through video, but to go and network with people, to have lunches and networking and those kinds of things. So that's how I make space for many things that are important to, to me, both from a fitness perspective, from an engagement um, with people perspective, uh, or even for my family. I have this, I've always had this like saying there to my team, even before the remote working ratcheted it up where there, I say, there's no schedules, there's just deliverables. So for me, both my kids played competitive sports. And so if you, you didn't have to ask me for permission to take your kid to soccer or an aged parent to a doctor's appointment, like just you get the work when you done when you need to, and there's deliverables. Um, and so if I need to block time in the morning for working out or in the evening to go to a kid's you know, hockey game, that I'm going to do that. Um, but then I'm making choices. I'm not watching Suits and Netflixing all night because I'm going to hop back online and going to clear out emails or do whatever. Well, that makes sense. I, I love that. So it sounds like you said so you do your workouts in the morning and it's just that that's non-negotiable. And I like that quote where there's conviction, there, there's capacity. <laughs> so <laughs> make, make, make a network. Well, we have a couple questions left. Uh, the first one, Victoria, how can we contact you? How can we get a hold of you for those listening in? They're like, oh my gosh, I'm so inspired. I got to connect with her. How, how can they best do that? The easiest way is to go to my website, which is victoria dash peltier.com. And I'm sure you'll have it in the show notes so they don't need to worry about spelling the last name. And then from there, they can choose to connect out with me on whatever social platform um, they prefer, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Perfect. And then last question, what's the one takeaway you want someone to have from this interview today? I, I use the word unstoppable. I think I said that's like my personal motto or philosophy. I want to tell your listeners that they can live their, their own version, whatever their unstoppable journey looks like. They are the CEOs of themselves, brand you, and making choice. And I, I think they, there's great opportunity and potential, but to bring back one thing I said earlier, you need to lean into the things that will make you uncomfortable because it is with that that the growth and opportunity will come. I love that. Well, this, this, this has been so fun, Victoria. Thank you so much for coming on today. And for those tuning in, definitely make sure to say hi to Victoria. As you can see, she's passionate. She's tenacious. She's here to help out. And she knows a little bit what she's talking about. And so def definitely connect with her and uh, obviously hire her to speak, check out her books. And otherwise, we'll see you all next week. So thank you, everyone. That concludes another episode of Rapid Results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.